Well, good morning. My name is Tony Anderson. I have the privilege of serving here as the executive pastor and the pastor of counseling. And I thought I'd give us a little culture this morning by starting our time with a little dramatic reading. Excited, aren't you? If you it'll be up on the screen. It may seem familiar to you. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. Now you may recognize this. This is the opening of Charles Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities. And when I read this in ninth grade, it sparked an interest to read any, for me, for the first time, anything longer than a sporting news article. But as I read that, Dickens became, and still is, my favorite novelist. As I was preparing though for this lesson and thought back about this, I said, you know what? This is very descriptive of my Christian walk. And maybe it's the same for you as well. As I look at this, as a believer, I enjoy the abundant life here and now, the best of times. But frequently with my sin and attitude, I bring dishonor to our Lord. We have the Holy Spirit within us and the word of God to guide us in all wisdom. Yet we frequently ignore God's word and act like fools. We have great belief in the Lord, but frequently are praying to God, help me, help my unbelief. We walk with Jesus who is light, yet we want to keep our sin hidden in the darkness. We have eternal, absolute hope in the Lord, but sometimes we despair when we forget who God is and what his promises are. But I think one area in our Christian walk where we can experience the best of times and the worst of times is in the area of forgiveness. When we are believers, we have experience such great forgiveness that we ought to be rejoicing every day when we remember it. Yet we can easily turn and act with bitterness and vengefulness and unforgiveness toward one another. But we have to be real here, right? We have been hurt by people, right? People have sinned against us. We live in a sin-cursed world. That's just a reality, right? You may have, maybe as a spouse, you've you experienced the adultery by your spouse, or maybe there's been habitual pornography, or maybe a classmate or roommate or coworker has lied about you, damaged your reputation, or maybe you've even been subject to abuse or assault. And in those moments, the offender comes to you and says, will you forgive me? What are your emotions then? frustration, confusion, anger, and you're thinking, do they know how much I've suffered? I want them to know. And if I just say, I forgive you, I'm letting them off the hook. I want some element of revenge. Well, today we're gonna to look at another classic, a greater classic, a tale of two servants. And we're gonna learn from this that biblical forgiveness is possible required and what it means. So if you have your Bible, I hope you, would you open them to Matthew 18? We're going to be in verse 18, sorry, in verse 21. And as you look there, if you, as you, as you, we're going to actually multitask, as you're finding that, why don't you stand with me? And we want to continue to read our sort of opening prayer or declaration before the Lord that we're not in first Thessalonians, but we still want this to be true today as we open God's word. So if you're new, we're gonna read this together. Okay, here we go. This is God's word, his heart revealed. 
I humbly declare his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I will not lean on my own understanding, but incline my heart now to receive his word so that I may excel still more in filling the earth with his glory by walking in his truth and loving all people as he has loved me. Thank you. you can be seated. All right, picking up in Matthew 18, verse 21, we see, then Peter came and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So as we look at this tale of two servants and address the topic of forgiveness, I think the question right out of the box is, why should I forgive? And I think we know the answer to that. Sin breaks and destroys relationships. Sin breaks and destroys relationships. And if you're struggling with forgiveness, you know that. If someone has hurt you or sinned against you and you've been withholding forgiveness, you know that relationship is not what it was or not what it could be. But we also see that only through a relationship with God, through Christ, is forgiveness even possible. Today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you uh, sinned against Jesus, you rebelled against him, you hurt him, yet he chose to forgive you. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ because he chose to forgive you. And it's through that relationship that we are able to forgive others. Our ability to forgive others starts with first the forgiveness we've received from Jesus. And Jesus makes that point as we look at this parable. So if we look at the parable, it opens with a king wanting to settle accounts with his slaves. So they call slave one in and he owes, it says, 10,000 talents. Now, if you've studied the passage before, depending on who's teaching, it differs how great that amount is in today's dollars. But back then it was 20 years worth of salary. So we can say easily it was 200,000 years worth of salary. Easily tens of millions of dollars. Simply a debt 
that he could not pay. And back then a debtor was totally at the mercy of the creditor. There was no chapter seven bankruptcy. There was no homestead exemption. You couldn't work out a short sale. There was no garnishment protection, no job protection. The creditor could, uh, could jail the debtor or sell him as a slave and his wife and his children. And he didn't have to sell them as a package. He could sell them separately all together to help pay off the debt. And so the slave knew he simply had a debt he was unable to pay and he did the only thing he could do. He threw himself at the mercy of the king and said, have patience with me and I will repay. And what's the king do? King doesn't do what he asked. No, the king totally forgave the debt. He didn't work out a payment plan. He didn't reduce the debt. He didn't put it on non-interest accrual. He totally forgave the debt. I want us to stop here and as best we can imagine what that slave experienced at that time. It was a debt so heavy, so enormous that he knew it was impossible and he was facing certain jail or slavery, not only for himself, but for his family. Yet the king forgave it. Can you imagine what you would have felt like? I mean, you didn't know what your day was gonna turn to. I mean, what your day was gonna turn out like when you got up, you get summoned for the king on a debt you can't pay. And then in moments, it's totally forgiven. This slave says, gets up from the presence of the king and goes looking, because it says he found another slave who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, 100 denarii is easily, is about three months worth of wages. That's not an insignificant amount. How many of you could go without three months, would sacrifice three months of wages easily? I couldn't. See, I think if you've studied this passage before, you may have discounted this because yes, slave one owed a ton of money, but we sort of think, well, slave two, that was sort of a, a quarter. So we're thinking here was someone will, unwilling to forgive just a little tiny offense. But this was a significant offense. It was three months worth of wages. And said he went out and he found him and choked him and saying, pay back what you owe. Slave two then did the exact same thing slave one did. Same position, knelt before him and pleaded, have mercy, I will repay. The slave one said, nope. Had him thrown into prison until he should repay everything. Now, as fellow slaves saw this, they were looking around, they could not believe. How could you literally go from the feet of the king being forgiven all of that and go and choke and throw into prison a fellow slave for only three months worth of wages? And so they went and told the king. And the king had slave one brought back in before him. And then what did, what did the king call slave one? you wicked servant. That's not a word we use much, wicked servant. I serve in the counseling ministry and sometimes when we talk in, in counseling, someone will say, yeah, I know I messed up. I know I could do better at that. They're very reluctant to even call sin, sin. But to say wicked, the king said, you receive my forgiveness and won't forgive others, you wicked slave. And then he made two very simple points that are important to us. 
He said, the experience of forgiveness in your own life demands that you forgive others. Forgiveness is not an option. When you experience forgiveness out of gratitude to the king, for gratitude out of what the king has done to you, you should want to then forgive others. Not out of any merit or anything inherent in that other slave, but out of gratitude to the king who has forgiven you so much. See, those who refuse to forgive fail to understand or have chosen to forget the magnitude of the forgiveness they've received. They have failed to understand or recall to mind their relationship with God. Because maybe you think, well, God forgave me, but it wasn't, he didn't have to forgive me a lot because I'm not that bad. The point the king is making here is it doesn't matter what sin was committed against you. It's meager compared to our sin against God. Because our sin required a holy, righteous savior to die. Jesus tells us in Luke 7, 47, that, uh, that he who is forgiven little loves little. And I think that's true. I think those of us who are forgiven little or more accurately, those who think we've been forgiven little do forgive little. In our mind, what I've done is not nearly as bad as what my spouse did, my friend did, my coworker did, my family member did. And it's just not true. So who represents you and me in this parable? Little audit, who, are, who are we? Are we slave one or slave two? You don't want to say it, do you? Which one are we? We're slave one. We are slave one. We, are, we offended God by sinning. We have a debt we can't pay no matter how good we are. And the book of Romans says that before we place faith in Christ, we are useless and enemies of God. So let's consider slave one. Slave one was brought before the king. Notice slave one wasn't looking for the king. Are you like that? When you know you owe someone money, you're like, ooh, I think I'll avoid that room. I forgot my wallet. I know he's going to ask. No, slave one wasn't looking for the king. King brought him in and wanted to settle up and says, pay back what you owe. And slave one did the only thing he could do. He just dropped on his knees and said, have patience with me. I will repay. He asked for mercy. But as I prepared this lesson, I started thinking, what was slave one really thinking? Did he have no sense of how great his debt was? Did he really think, you know what? I think I can work it off. I don't think it's that bad. Give me time. I'll earn my way back. I'll earn the debt off. Or maybe he said, it's hopeless, but if I can convince the king just to give me a little mercy, maybe I can go enjoy a few days living for self before I ultimately have to pay the price. And maybe that's you today. Maybe it's like, I'm not that bad. I really don't need God's mercy. Or it's like, God would never give me mercy. I wanna encourage you that if you acknowledge your beggar state and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. I cannot repay your debt. He will be faithful and forgive you of all unrighteousness. So I would like to encourage you to do that today if that's you. But the other truth is, as believers, as believers, do we sometimes make excuses for not forgiving? I have some audience participation. I know you don't make excuses for not forgiving, but the person next to you might. 
So tell me, what are some of the reasons or excuses you hear people for not granting forgiveness? Got to be louder and clearer. I'm an old man. They don't deserve it. They didn't apologize. They'll keep doing it. They're not ready. Yeah, that's a good... I don't feel like it, or I can't forget. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Aren't you glad God never uses those excuses with you? See, when we think about forgiveness, we want to know, we want God's example of us to be a model. Okay, I'm supposed to forgive others. Let me look to how God forgave me as my model or my example of what God does and doesn't do. But also, God's example is a command to be followed. It's a command to be followed. You've received my forgiveness, you are to do likewise. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, be forgiving. There's the command, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There's the model. But there's something else I want to explore. If you started, as I started going, maybe you said, oh, here we go, another lesson on forgiveness. And you're thinking, we're, get, we're getting ready to be put under a pile again because we're not forgiving enough. Or I've heard this before. But what I want you to go away with today is not only is his, his example a model and a command, it should be a motive. It should be a motive. I want you today to reflect on the huge debt that's been forgiven you if you were a follower of Jesus Christ to really recognize how great our debt was and he forgave it. I think it's very helpful when we struggle with forgiving to remember we've been forgiven even more. Then Jesus at the end of verse 35 gives a warning it's also very similar in Matthew 6, 15. If you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive you your transgressions. So I wanna spend a couple of minutes here. First of all, what Jesus is not saying, he's not saying your forgiveness is conditioned on you forgiving others. In other words, he's not saying, I'm gonna wait. Once I see that you've forgiven people, then I'm gonna grant you forgiveness for your sins. That's not what he's saying here. I think there is a warning here that, we, that you should be aware of although I don't think it's the main point of the passage, but I will say this. If you, by your character and nature, are generally a bitter, unforgiving person, if that's typically your response to all offenses, then it's possible you have not received forgiveness from Jesus for your own sins. And I would encourage you to prayerfully consider that. Have I truly sought and been granted forgiveness for my own sin? Because our ability to forgive others flows out of the forgiveness we've received. So if you generally are an unforgiving person, I think it's a good time to prayerfully evaluate. But is it possible that believers withhold forgiveness or slow to forgive? Yes, and I think that's what's in play here. And I'll tell you why I think that. First of all, Jesus starts the parable with the kingdom of heaven is like this. So we're talking about those who are in the kingdom. And here in Matthew 6, 15, he speaks of the father will not forgive you your transgressions if you've been unforgiving. 
Then it says, also, the slave was turned over, and I thought this was interesting, to the torturers, not the executioners. So a death is not in mind here, but there is severe discipline and chastening until the slave was willing to forgive. In a minute, we're going to talk about how sin creates a debt that has to be repaid. So when he slave is thrown into prison, I do not believe, and most do not, it's general because the king is not taking that old debt that was forgiven and reinstating it. No, he's saying you have now created a new debt because you've been unforgiving of slave too. And I'm going to bring discipline and consequence until you are willing to forgive and be forgiving. So that should be a warning to us that if we are unforgiving, it's not something that we should expect the Lord to overlook. And he can bring chastening and discipline into our lives. So the command is clear that we are commanded to forgive, but I think we should, we should be encouraged by the fact that we can't out forgive God. He's not asking us to forgive more than he's forgiven. And every time we practice and grant forgiveness, we are reenacting the gospel story. What a great opportunity when we say, yes, I forgive you to reenact that gospel story. But there's another question that's asked and answered in this account. How many times do I have to forgive someone for the same thing? See, the Pharisees taught three times. Someone does it three times, you have to forgive them. After that, all bets are off. I think Peter, who sometimes gets a bad rap, was starting to recognize that this kingdom of God thing is different. So he went to Jesus and says, how often do I have to forgive? And he doubled it and added one, up to seven times. And Jesus said, no, not, I say 70 times seven. Do you think Jesus meant 490? Yeah, I hope not because I think some of you are counting and you're at 482 and you say eight more and I'm done. Or you're saying, you know, I know Doug likes NASB, but I'm using ESV because it only says 77 and then I'm done. No, the point Jesus was making here He was not going to settle on predetermined stopping points for broken relationships. We are commanded to forgive repeatedly without limits. Jesus died. He died for reconciliation so that we would be reconciled with him. And so he is not going to settle for us placing arbitrary limits on what we will do and not do for the reconciliation of relationships. It is that important to him and that urgent to him. In fact, earlier in Matthew... On the other side of the coin, it says, if you know someone has something against against you and you're worshiping, you are to leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled before you worship. And so I'm gonna, you know what? You don't need my permission, but I would encourage you right now, if you are not reconciled with someone, please get up and go be reconciled. That would be the best application of a message I've ever had. It is that important that we are to go be reconciled. And so if you have been taught in some way that there's limits on how often you should forgive, I just need to tell you, you've been given bad, unbiblical advice. Now we're talking, this is different than trusting, but if you're told to withhold forgiveness, you've been given bad, unbiblical advice. I know it's hard, right? But the forgiveness we received was hard. When we surrender our rights, the one grant, it's always harder than the one granting forgiveness. It sure was for Jesus. 
and what he had to go through. But because God commands me to forgive, I know he'll give me the grace and strength necessary to obey him. God will never command me or you to do anything he doesn't equip you to do. So can we just be honest? When there's an issue of forgiveness and you say, I can't do that right now, can we acknowledge it's really, I won't do that right now or I don't want to? It's not a question of I can't. It's a question of I don't want to. But if it's that important and we have to do it without limits, we need to understand what it means. What does forgiveness mean? If you look at the New Testament, forgiveness is the releasing of someone from a legal or moral obligation. It's canceling a debt. Or you could say it this way, it's a decision, it's a decision to release a person from the obligation that resulted when he injured you. So let's compare our relationship with God. When we sin against God, an obligation is created that we cannot repay. And since we can't repay it, if it's not forgiven, we will not be reconciled. But yet God chose to forgive the debt so that we can be reconciled. On a human level, on a horizontal level, when someone sins against us, it creates an indebtedness that is handled when someone asks forgiveness and the other one grants it. It is an exchange, it is an agreement. In fact, that's why when we, in the counseling ministry, when we're counseling people to seek forgiveness, we say, don't simply say, I'm sorry. Because you could say, I'm sorry, and they would say, yeah, you are sorry. But instead, it's like, will you forgive me? The ball is now put in their court, and then they have to choose to be obedient and grant forgiveness or be disobedient and withhold forgiveness. But forgiveness is an exchange or an agreement. But the good news is God is not asking you to have an emotional response. Let me demonstrate that. Imagine here's 100 denarii, it's an IOU, it's a loan, it's a debt. Do I have any bankers in the room? People who are bankers? Wow, first time ever this means people and no bankers. I used to represent banks and represent loan officers and loan officers would make loans and their compensation was based on the loans they would make, but also with the loans got repaid. See, yeah, board of directors of banks don't like you making loans that don't get repaid, okay? So let's suppose hypothetically, a vice president has a loan that hasn't been repaid, but the president of the bank comes in and says, you know, your customer, we've got bigger things in store for them. So I want you to cancel his debt. I want you to tear up the loan. He doesn't say anything about how it's gonna affect the vice president's compensation. He says, I want you to cancel the loan. Is he, is the president talking to the vice president saying, I want you to have an emotional reaction right now? I want you to feel like it? No, he's saying, man, cancel the debt. And so what it means when it's canceled is, we're not gonna seek collection. I'm not gonna engage attorneys to go pursue the loan or foreclosure or anything like that, it's canceled. I cancel the debt. It's a one-time event of canceling. So when I say I forgive the debt, what are we doing? What are we actually saying? And again, keep in mind, Jesus is forgiveness of us as a model. And we are making three promises when we say we forgive. First of all, we are saying, I promise I won't bring the sin up against you, the offender, for your harm. 
When I say I forgive you, I'm not gonna keep it in my back pocket and use it later on. If an issue comes up three weeks from now, I'm not gonna say, well, this and what you did three weeks ago. Or maybe you won't say the words, but it's not like I'm gonna use this for manipulation. Well, because of what you did, you should do this for me. Well, okay, but remember what you did. I'm not gonna bring it up for your harm. Now, doesn't mean it's never gonna come up. In fact, you may bring it up for the good of the person who sinned against you. I use this example in counseling training all the time. Let's suppose a husband who has been engaged in habitual pornography asks forgiveness and the wife grants forgiveness. And six months later, they get a new laptop. If the wife says, honey, because of your temptation, why don't we put a filter on it? She's not bringing that past offense up for his harm, but to love him well. So I'm not gonna bring it up to you, the offender, for your harm. I also promise I will not tell others about your sin except when there's a need for wise counsel or required biblically. So I'm not gonna grant forgiveness and then go gossip and tell others about it. So if my wife sinned against me, strictly hypothetical, never happened. But if she did and I granted forgiveness, I'm not gonna then go to my family group leaders and say, Chris and Shane, you won't believe what Lisa did. For two reasons. One, it doesn't love her well, but it also doesn't love the person I tell because now they have to take their thoughts captive. And every time they encounter Lisa, they go, oh, wait a minute. Lisa did that sin, but wait a minute, she asked forgiveness, but now they have to take their thoughts captive. So I'm not gonna gossip about it, but there will be times when maybe there are consequences of the sin that we need wisdom. And so we need wisdom in knowing how to address the consequences of the sin, or there may be times when legally there's reporting requirements. And so biblically we have to report the sin. Third one, I promise I will not dwell on the sin. I'm not gonna replay the DVD in my mind. That means when I say I forgive you, in the days and weeks ahead, I'm not gonna sit there and just sort of get in my head and go, how could he have done that? How could she have done that? What, what, what were they trying to get? I can't believe it. No, it means I'm gonna take my thoughts captive. For most people, for me, this is the hardest one because we can't always control the fact that the event pops into our head, but we are commanded to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So that simply means that God is commanding me and therefore he will enable me to think biblically about the offense when it comes to mind. So what about the knowledge of God is helpful? Well, first of all, when I think about how someone sinned against me, the first thought I should have is, but it's nothing nothing compared to my sin against Jesus. Or it's like, you know what? Jesus suffered even more. So now I understand that Jesus knows what I'm going through. And Jesus has given me the opportunity to reenact the gospel by living out these three promises of forgiveness. So I think it's helpful to understand this. Forgiveness is a one-time event. And then the one granting forgiveness has a lifetime of living out the promises. So they grow in keeping those promises because we don't always keep those promises perfectly, but we grow in it. So forgiveness is a one-time event and then a lifetime of living out those three promises. Ken Sandy wrote The Peacemaker, says this, I will not let the incident forgiven stand between us or hinder 
our personal relationship. He actually uses this as a fourth promise. I think this is more of a living out of the first three promises. But the point is the forgiven sin is not gonna hinder us from growing in grace the way Christ intended. We may have different interests, our lives may change. There may be legal limitations or, or wisdom that limits uh, who you may be around in the issues of abuse or things of that nature. But the forgiven sin will not hinder us from loving each other in Christ the way we were intended. I wanna read you a true testimony. We have changed the names for purposes of this testimony, but I can attest it's true. We're gonna call them John and Mary. Seems like every time you change the name, they become John and Mary. Um, this is from John. Mary and I were in our early 30s and we had been married about nine years. We had one child and made a good living. We would say the marriage was pretty good, but we frequently argued about the frequency of physical intimacy. I would argue she never desired it. She would argue I always desired it. Again, after about nine years of marriage, I came home one Sunday night from an out-of-town guy's trip and Mary in tears told me that she had been date raped as a college freshman her first day on campus, a year and a half before we had even met. Mary had told me something about that night that the guy had tried to force himself on her and later spread rumors about her, but she had told me nothing else happened. However, now 15 years later, she wanted to tell someone starting with me. That was a surreal night for me. Mary was very much hurting and I wanted to help, but I was confused as to how to help or what to say about an event that occurred 15 years ago. I was angry for many reasons, righteously angry at the guy. I knew who he was, but didn't know him personally for how he hurt Mary and selfishly angry, angry that I did not know about this earlier. I had thoughts, I didn't knowingly sign up for this. I was angry at the circumstances and how it became clear that this crime committed against Mary 15 years ago had been a big reason behind our discord. I later understood that the unrighteous part of my anger at my circumstances was actually anger toward our sovereign God. As we begin the process of how to respond to this now revealed fact, Mary got involved in Bible study fellowship and was surrounded by strong Christian women. Through Mary's study of the word, she came to the decision that she needed to press charges if that was still legally possible. It turned out that the state where we went to college had no statute of limitations for such a crime. So we traveled back to that state and filed a police report. The police were very nice and compassionate, but did not give us much hope that anything would come of this after so many years. However, we made a second trip back to the, to the state, I'm sorry, when the matter went before the grand jury and the grand jury voted to bring charges. So the man who committed the crime and now lived in another state was arrested and released on his own recognizance and the matter began a very, very slow process toward trial. Mary continued to grow in the Lord through the process and I did as well as I also had become involved in BSF. The study of the scriptures during painful circumstances definitely grew us in Christ's likeness. Through the process, Mary learned from a newspaper article that the man charged with the crime was now a professing believer and deacon in his church. As Mary studied the scripture, she became convicted that since the matter now involved two believers, she needed to confront him one-on-one. -on -one. I was against this, but could not articulate a biblical reason for my objection. Mary was showing more spiritual maturity and courage than me in those moments. Therefore, she asked the prosecutor to ask the man through his lawyer if he would meet with her. The prosecutor said he did not think he would come, but yes, he would ask. I was shocked. I confess I was shocked when we learned that the man was willing to come to our city and meet with Mary. He would come with his lawyer and the agreement was nothing they said would be admissible in court. 
So Mary and I met with the man and his lawyer at the church we were attending. I sat in the room with the man's lawyer while the man and Mary met in an adjacent room. That was probably the longest, most awkward moment I've experienced. After what seemed like an eternity, Mary and the man came out of the room, Mary crying with tears of relief because the man had acknowledged his sin and asked Mary's forgiveness and she had granted it. Then the man turned to me and asked my forgiveness for the sinful crime. It was in that moment with the Holy Spirit empowering me, I granted forgiveness as well. Mary later told the prosecutor she no longer believed the man was a threat due to his new nature and she would not object if the prosecutor wanted to drop the case. But she also said she would cooperate if the prosecutor wanted to proceed. The prosecutor made the decision to not pursue the case. I often still have to take my thoughts captive concerning this event because Mary and I still experience consequences from the sin committed against her. But I know and understand that my forgiveness through Christ was greater and required me to grant forgiveness as well. That was some real hurt that couple went through, yet they knew they had received a greater forgiveness. Well, in the moments we have left, I do think there's a question that we need to answer. And that is, what do I do about those who don't repent, who don't ask forgiveness? What's my responsibility there? Many times people will hurt us and they won't ask forgiveness or maybe they're dead now or otherwise out of the picture. So what do you do? Well, first of all, I wanna say from the person who has committed the sin, for, for them to receive forgiveness, it does require confession and repentance. Romans says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. So maybe you're thinking, great, I am off the hook. If he doesn't ask, I don't have to grant forgiveness. But what if you're, but what if you're in there and you're struggling with bitterness and the person who sinned against you is dead or is out of the picture? How do you address that temptation toward bitterness and resentfulness? Jesus instructs us in two different places. It's very helpful for us. And the first one is in Mark eleven twenty five. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that the Father in the he- who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But then in Luke, Jesus says, be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Seems a lot more narrower. So now are we confused? Do I have to figure out which one did Jesus say last? Because last controls. Or are they consistent? If you look at the Mark passage and the highlighted words, you start getting an understanding. Whenever you stand praying, when should you pray? Daily, well, have an attitude of praying without ceasing, should pray daily, all right? Now, I know some of us don't pray like we should, but the command we should be praying, it says, when you pray, forgive. Do you see any conditional words around that? forgive. No, when you pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So if this is the circle of anyone, who falls outside the circle? Nobody. Anybody is everybody. So what Jesus is telling us here is this is a prayer that when you're before the Lord, you're saying, Lord, I'm tearing up the debt. I'm surrendering it to you. I'm no longer seeking repayment. It says in the scriptures, you are a righteous judge who judges justly. I'm trusting you with that. I desire reconciliation and I'm willing to do what it takes to be reconciled. That's where all forgiveness should start for us is that prayer.
That is for our own heart. In Luke, it says, if your brother sins, now I'm an only child, so this doesn't apply to me, right? No. Who, who's our brother? Who are we talking about? Christians. If one of your Christian brothers or sisters sins, we are to, commanded, by the way, not a suggestion, rebuke him. Now, two words are translated rebuke in the New Testament. This is the more tentative one, where we are to go with an open hand with the facts as we understand them and say, Ryan, based on what I understand, I think he sinned against me. Could be I have the facts wrong, or it could be, no, I had him right. And Lord willing, Ryan would say, you're right, please forgive me, and I would forgive him. Now, this wouldn't happen with Ryan, but I could go to someone else and they could say, pound sand, buddy, I don't care. What do I do then? Do I say, oh, I forgive you anyway? Well, first of all, we should have already been in Mark eleven twenty five. So between us and the Lord, we've surrendered our right to repayment. But because he hasn't sought forgiveness, that relationship still might not be reconciled. And so in that matter, we might still be adversaries or enemies, not because I want anything, but because I have a brother who's unwilling to repent. But Jesus tells us also in Luke, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So that's what we should still be praying, blessing and doing good. Now, very clearly, when a brother sins and won't repent, you do good for them to bring others in. If you read up in Matthew 18, what we like to refer to as church discipline or radical love in the body, you actually do good by bringing other people in. Sometimes in a marriage, one spouse will say, well, I've, I've confronted him or her. Do I just have to live with it? No, you do good to bring others in, but you don't get bitter, you don't slander, and you don't gossip. So what are the obvious takeaways here? What are the responses today? If you haven't asked King Jesus to cancel your debt, to ask forgiveness of your debts, I encourage you to do that today. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk to you. That's a decision you want to make today. But do you have any, for you believers, do you have any relationship that's broken because you're withholding forgiveness? Or maybe you've said the words, but you're still bringing it up. You're still using it against them. You're still bitter. Or maybe you've been unwilling to follow the commands of Luke 17, three and go lovingly admonish a brother. And as a result, that relationship is drifting further and further apart. Forgiveness is hard. I read the John and Mary testimony to you for two reasons. First of all, I am John and Lisa is Mary. That was us. So I know it's hard. The other reason I read it is if I had told you it was me, I wouldn't have gotten through it the first time. It is hard, but going back to it, that my favorite, one of my favorites, this line from A Tale of Two Cities, it's a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done. There's a far, far better rest I go to than I've ever known. For granting forgiveness is far, far better than holding on to revenge and bitterness and the rest you receive 
when you surrender that debt, grant forgiveness and trust the Lord is a better rest than you will ever have. So if you will, stand with me as we have our closing benediction. If you've been here, we've read these two verses from Thessalonians, but I think it's very applicable to keep this in mind as we leave here. The last application is, will you be an instrument of reconciliation this week? If you're new, I'll read the first one and then you got, we'll read the last verse together. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.